My dad travels a lot for business, and one of his favorite stories to tell is the time he took my mom with him on a flight. They got seated in the back of the plane near the bathrooms. And the suction when they flushed the toilet was really, really loud. So finally he gets fed up and he says to my mom, You know, I wish those people would just keep that door closed until that thing stops flushing. So she turns to me, aghast, and says, I thought that was the cappuccino machine. So he turns to her and says, Do you see anybody drinking cappuccino on this plane? And she goes, You ruined it for me. (laughs) Man, talk about surprise and disappoint. (laughs) Well, we're back with another episode of ID8. And you guessed it, this time we're talking about the UX of air travel. We're going to take a look at the way we book flights, the insanity of TSA checkpoints, the contrast of airport lounges, and a love story from Alaska Airlines. How do you feel about the experience of flying? And what can we learn from those experiences to make better experiences tomorrow? We're here with the Smythe Group design team, and we've got our engineer, Paul. Hi, I'm Paul. Designer, Aaron. Hey, Hiromi. And user advocate, Rob. Hello, Hiromi. Why are you all saying hello to me? (laughs) I did. I'm introducing you. If I took you to a dinner party and I introduced you to someone, would you really say hello to me? (laughs) Well, whatever. I guess we need to work on the UX of this podcast. For now, let's talk about air travel. When I was nine years old, my sister went to Ireland for a couple of weeks and was flying back into Newark Airport. And so me and my mom had to take the arduous journey down I-95 into the depths of New Jersey. And we're just circling and circling for hours. And finally, my mom just like mentally and physically gives up and lets go of the steering wheel and just puts her head in her hands and starts crying. And so I'm this nine-year-old kid who has to grab the wheel and just be like, Mom, can you just drive the car? Yikes. It's just this perfect analogy for what happens to a lot of people trying to navigate this sort of complicated maze of procedures and information and instructions just to get on a plane and and get where they're going. (laughs) That That is very sad, Paul. (laughs) That's a really sad story. (laughs) I I think it's funny how quickly, like, the novelty of flying wore off for me. Like, I don't think I flew until I was maybe 14 or 15 years old. And I flew for the first time, and it was, like, the most exciting thing I had ever done. And, you know, no amount of TSA anal cavity searches, no amount of ears (laughs) popping and head feeling like it's going to explode, nosebleeds, discomfort... Like, no amount of that could prevent me from being excited about it. And then, like, I got older and started traveling for work or for other reasons. And five or six times in, it just became such a, like, a drag. You know, I found this documentary on Netflix called City in the Sky. And they call it that because basically at any moment, there are a million people in the sky on some 100,000 flights. Wow. And that is really amazing. So everything you need for a city... Uh, sewage systems, food, entertainment, security. And it really is fascinating to think about that there's all these incredibly complex systems that work together worldwide to make that happen. And as I was doing a lot of research for this podcast, I actually kind of felt that sense of wonder again. Maybe there's something to that. 
Yeah, I mean, if we're fair, you're right. Air travel really is amazing. In fact, there's probably plenty of stuff that we take for granted even before we get to the airport. Aaron, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? I want you to think of the hundreds of steps it takes for you to travel by air. I book my tickets. We really online. get hung up on the unpleasant steps. Like we lament the dehumanizing routine of the security line or, pack my or huddling around a merry-go-round, hoping that your bags didn't end up in Idaho. But what about that first step? When you book your tickets online. So most of us use an online comparison website to book our flights. Unless, of course, you're a business traveler. Because my clients pay and I don't care. Or you're Paul. I felt like it was more worth the extra 50 bucks or so just to book direct with the airline. So unless you're a business traveler or really tied to an airline or very refined like Paul is, (laughs) then you're probably using one of these price comparison websites. But think for a moment how amazing it is that these even exist. I mean, what if air travel was more like healthcare? YouTube couple, the new Altons, imagine this dystopian alternate reality and just listen to 15 seconds of it and, and see how you feel. I'm sorry, we have nothing open on that date. You, you might try another carrier. Is that better? Um, who has availability? I'm afraid we have no way to know that. I have no way to look into their systems. <laughs> uh, who would know? You can call them individually and ask. I'm sure you can find them. Oh, look, I, don't, I don't have time to call two dozen airlines. Uh, it's important that... Terrible. So how is it that Hiromi can find a flight online, but Paul, at his refined old age, can't book his hip replacement online? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. Was it was it my nod to classic literature that tipped you off? It, it was. That was it. You know, I've never actually met Paul in real life, so he's one hundred and five. I knew it. <laughs> so why can't Paul book online, but but Hiromi can? The answer, healthcare never had travel agents. Hello, worldwide travel. You remember travel agents. You go into their office, you tell them where you want to go, when you want to get there. They type away on their computer, give you some options, and you say, sure, let's go with that one. So how is that even possible? When I started looking into this, I I thought the answer would be standardization, something that we've been begging for on some of our other episodes. So is that what it is? Is it standardization? Kind of. (laughs) They access a middleman service called a Global Distribution System, or GDS. A GDS signs a contract with airline A, airline B, airline C. C and takes their inventories and combines them for travel agents in real time. In the beginning, this was just thousands of phone calls going back and forth, back and forth. Then, of course, over time, it got digitized. So today, a travel agent has to know a whole language of GDS commands. So if you want to fly from Minneapolis to Paris on the morning of February 3rd, they'd have to enter 102 febmsppar 10 a and then it just kicks kicks back this text that that only a travel agent can read. So then companies like Expedia and Priceline, they said, let's take this data and take the travel agent out of the equation. Let's make a website where where consumers can make their own comparisons and book their own flights. So this GDS is still in play today. Yeah, exactly. There, there are still four major 
global distribution systems that provide all the data that that many of these price comparison websites use today. I don't think I can book like Southwest or something like that. Is there some? Yeah. Like- so here's the thing: the GDS companies charge airlines a fee for every flight booked. In 2016, the airlines paid seven billion dollars in fees. Not only that. GDS companies are big and slow to change, and airlines are kind of stuck with them. So they get the information that they've always gotten, but do they want to start displaying how how much legroom a seat has, nope. or or whether or not seats recline? Can't do it. If there's something special about the airline, mm-hmm. forget about it. The GDS just sends facts. Southwest says, "Yeah, we're cheap, but we offer all these other things that aren't reflected in the results. You're not showing the real value of our tickets." Plus, we don't want to pay you any fees. So everyone has to come straight to us at southwest.com. You know, I really like Southwest. I love those two free check bags. I love uh, being able to cancel if I have to with no fees. But that boarding process, it's like a social experiment. Attention passengers, we are about to start the boarding process for flight 327 to Sacramento, California. Before we start, however, please look at those in line behind you. They are now your mortal enemies. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> it basically also... becomes the Hunger Games, right? Yeah. Yeah. The yeah. Hunger Games. <laughs> you know, it's funny that research shows that their crazy every man for themselves boarding process is one of the most efficient. But but let's uh, get back to online booking. So you're benefiting from standardization and aggregation. These websites take that GDS data and now they provide trend analysis and price forecasting, something that airlines don't offer on their own. They don't want you to know if that ticket's going to go up or down. And most airlines, you know, they don't like any of this. They only use it because that's what consumers have come to expect. They're looking into alternatives to GDSs. Uh, One of the options is blockchain, the decentralized technology that makes Bitcoin possible. So this would allow them to share that data with each other, with other airlines and vendors, but not have to pay a middleman. But really, if they could, they would just have everyone come to their site, just like Southwest does. If they had their way, there would be no standardization. There would be no easy price comparison. And just like our credit card terminal episode, we'd be discussing the frustrating inconsistencies of airline websites. And there are inconsistencies, but right now we have little reason to care. So thank your local travel agent and hope Priceline's not next. You, you reached out on Twitter and asked people what, Rob? Uh, Yeah, what are things you hate about flying and what are the things that you like about flying? So what did people say? Uh, Basically, people enjoy both people watching and or the unique views of the sky and the ground that they get from an airplane. Or they enjoy just getting there faster. Uh, And then what did people dislike about it? It was overall discomfort in an airplane and the dreaded security checkpoints. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about those security (laughs) checkpoints. 
we all know why we have security <laughs> checkpoints, right? Why the TSA exists. In fact, um, there's a TSA Instagram account. Have you guys ever seen it? I heard about yeah, it. Yeah, I follow them. It's actually pretty sweet, and it has 825,000 followers. It reached number four at one point, competing with Beyonce. But it's handled by this guy named Bob. He was just a TSA guy. And uh, around 2011, we started sharing some of the crazy things that people tried to um, attempted to bring through TSA checkpoints. Yeah, so that's Bob. And, you know, it really is entertaining to see all the stuff that people try to sneak past TSA checkpoints. Knives are um, a daily, always a daily occurrence. Firearms are pretty much almost always a daily occurrence. Like I said, we find about 70 um, a week mm-hmm. carry-on bags, and the majority of those are loaded. So the TSA yeah. is doing their job. Have you seen that Key and Peele skit? It's all these terrorists in a cave, and they're just like, they're all coming up with ideas to bomb a plane. Why have we not taken a plane in 13 years? Khalid, you don't even know. It is all because the cunning and mighty TSA is always one step ahead of us. I do not believe it! It's true. Last month, I attempted to take down a plane with a pair of scissors five inches long. That sounds like a perfect plan! Well, why did it not work? Because in this shrewd TSA, they made restrictions so you can only take a four-inch scissors. <laughs> you know, it's funny, but the interesting thing is that TSA actually misses most weapons. An undercover operation revealed TSA screening at airports fails most of the time. Investigators found that screeners miss test weapons and bombs at baggage checkpoints more often than not. More than 70% of the time, undercover officers were able to get through TSA checkpoints with mock knives, guns, and explosives. Just two years ago, testing found a 95% failure rate. That's a lot of stuff getting through. It's amazing that we don't have more successful terror attacks. I like to, I like to know that I'm 20% safer. <laughs> you That's really comforting. Yeah, but I think, forgive me for being from the South, but uh, <laughs> a lot of people own like loaded weapons and they walk around all over the place in Louisiana, Texas, Alabama, Georgia. I wonder if the TSA confiscated weapons are just from people that don't understand they can't bring their pistol on the airplane. Oh, yeah, or yeah. it's second nature and they just I've had like a pocket knife in the bottom of my backpack before. I just forgot it was there. I can't oh, imagine yeah. forgetting I have a gun on my hip or whatever, but maybe. That's, if yeah, I was look, from Louisiana. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> look at this. Look at this uh, on TSA's Instagram account. It says the top 10 airports for firearm discoveries. Number one, two, and three are all in Texas. <laughs> yeah, right. So we have to ask, like, why is there such a high failure rate? And I spoke with a friend who is a former TSA agent. And what he said was that basically the TSA has always been one step behind. After 9-11 was the shoe bomber. The dude tried to blow up a bomb in his shoe. So after that, now everybody's gotta take the shoes off. Then dude stuffed a bomb in his underwear. So now after that, now everybody's gotta do this stupid like body scanner. Exactly. Yeah. No, it's actually, TSA is well aware of the fact that what they do is security theater. They know that they can't actually prevent something through their checkpoints. 
And so that's what's most interesting to me about it. Right. In <laughs> fact, there was this pilot that got in a lot of trouble a couple of years ago by pointing out that they're largely put in place to make people feel safe. A veteran airline pilot offered a video tour of San Francisco International Airport using his cell phone camera to point out what he believes are serious flaws in airport security. As you can see, airport security is kind of a farce. It's only smoke and mirrors, so you people believe that there is actually something going on here. Um, and this article in Fortune magazine also said that TSA is security circus. It said it's a $7 billion a year show put on for you. So a lot of that money, that $7 billion a year, is going into advanced scanning equipment, but they've gotten the TSA in trouble. Here's another case of uh, outrage over TSA pat-downs. The fury over the pat-downs not exactly dying them. It's the TSA versus TNA. Scanners are turning the tables. Now men can be judged by their package. According to uh, Aaron's wife calls them Nike scanners. There is a documented Nike scan in that <laughs> so many people are excited about TSA PreCheck. Um, any of you guys use PreCheck? Nope. I do not. I am a PreChecker. That's uh, one out of four here amongst us that actually uses PreCheck. Why not, right? TSA started uh, opening enrollment centers. This is Scott McCarthy from the Wall Street Journal. Uh, it cost $85 for five years of enrollment. Okay, so let's back up for a second. Does it take five years to become a terrorist? <laughs> so stupid. Five years is the exact amount of time it takes to be radicalized. That's a scientific <laughs> fact. Um, you, you fill out some information. They run a background check. You give them your fingerprints um, and then they uh, once they clear you they give you a known traveler number and you put that in your frequent flyer program and, and then in theory uh, you uh, get to uh, skip all the the long lines to re-enter the the country and go to a kiosk and and put your fingerprints on there and breeze through so you gotta wonder why wouldn't more people make use of that you know they only have like about two and three quarter million people that take advantage of that system Time Magazine did a study and they said that a lower fee and a simpler application process would encourage about 7 million more people to enroll in PreCheck. So simplicity, it is a little complex. But the other thing that's working against PreCheck is that TSA wants things to move along. So they've hired behavior detection officers to put people through PreCheck for free. They're trying to give them a, uh, a taste of uh, what it could be like in hopes it'll um, get them to enroll. That's Scott McCarthy again. Once you get it for free several times, um, why do I need to sign up? And, and people start thinking, hey, I'm already in this program, um, so I don't need to go enroll. And there's been a lot of confusion over that. Yeah. When I was traveling last week, there was no line for pre-check. And they said, oh, everyone's pre-check today. The whole entire airport, everyone going through that gate got to skip the scanners, didn't have to take their shoes off. They're just like, never mind, just for today, there are no terrorists. <laughs> and you're not a terrorist, and you're not a terrorist, and you're not a terrorist. No one's a terrorist. <laughs> no, I, I experienced crazy. the same thing. And, and I didn't know what to do. I was so lost because the guy was like, don't take your shoes off. And I was like, what about my belt? And he's like, don't take your belt off. And he was more and more frustrated with me. And I was just like, ah, I don't know what to do. Yeah, that is, it is it's right? so frustrating because it feels very inconsistent. You know, I asked my TSA friend, is there anything we can do to prepare people in advance? And he said, like, all that information is there. 
but it's just a ton of information in there. And so like people don't read that entire email. You yeah. know what I mean? He said too that at least half the people that fly are not frequent travelers. Most people have never flown before. Like, they're not worried about airport security. They're worried about like what gate are they at and like their hotel and their rental car. Like and so security is kind of the last thing on their mind. And so they just show up and they just stand in line wherever they're directed. And that's just the best solution that anyone can come up with for now. So why doesn't the airline take the initiative a little bit there and, and try to alleviate some of that pressure for me? Yeah. Um, you're just sure. like an icon on my ticket that's like, pants or no pants? Like, like <laughs> if it's a no pants day, there's just like a, a symbol with pants on it and then like a cross <laughs> through it. Pants or no pants day. That's an excellent point, right? <laughs> I was talking to my dad, you know, he's, he's not from this country. He said, visualize everything because not everyone speaks English. So he says, don't do this or take this out for you, uh, for, you know, security. I've seen so many place times that they're yelling at these people and they don't understand English, you know, visualize everything in the picture. Okay. You know, we were in the a line the other day and there's this little Vietnamese lady and here this guy is walking up and down the line yelling. How is she supposed to understand that or comply? It, it doesn't make sense. This makes me think of the security of logging into a website. A lot of it is a charade. You know, when you go to a certain website and their password requirements are kind of bonkers. They have these security questions and you have to have an exclamation point, but you can't have a number next to another number. And the more complicated it gets, it's proven that it's not really making your login any safer. But they do it so that you feel good. They do it so their bosses think that their website is safe when there are more effective ways to secure a website. And I think about pre-check too, it's kind of similar to logging in with a social sign-in where you can bypass all of that by, by proving who you are. And it makes for a better experience. And as a pre-check member, it's actually kind of satisfying to see people like stuck in the line, taking off their shoes. And you're just like, ha if only they had paid $85 five years ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think that anxiety is why many people don't enjoy being in the airport, right? And airlines recognize this. The airport is an unenjoyable place to exist. Arrive. Check in. Security. Mad dash through the airport, and then finally, sit at the gate and wait. And that's exactly why, years ago, they found obscure places in the airport for their frequent flyers to go and be comfortable. Enter the lure of the lounges. The intent is to give the our premium passenger a luxury place to rest and relax. Some lounges have just really gone over the top with full buffets, fine wines, places to sleep, places to take a shower. But have, have any of you guys used a lounge in your travels? Nope. <laughs> I've looked in I, through the window of one I, longingly. <laughs> yeah, to me, it's like the place where the airline pilots hang out. It's not open to me. It was kind of always my impression. Or like the super rich, like Harrison Ford and Sabrina. All work and no play made Linus Larrabee a billionaire. I just don't feel like buying any more networks this year. There's never anything good on. It's that kind of guy that goes to hang out in the lounge, like, with his girlfriend. It was always something that's not an option for me. Sorry, you're not allowed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's pretty much what I remember about lounges. Yeah, exactly. And that vibe, that's somewhat deliberate, right? Lounges are intimidating. There's a lack of transparency because the whole point is to block off the rest of that horrible airport and put you in this exclusive area. 
but I was talking to Tyler Dykeman. He and a couple other guys worked with us on their project called Lounge Buddy. Yeah, well, I mean, I think lounges can be can appear intimidating to almost any type of traveler. Lounges are perceived as being this elite thing that only business travelers can take advantage of. But recently, we know that all these services are being debundled, right? You have to pay for your luggage. You have to pay for your water. You have to pay for all this stuff. So part of that, as a consequence, the lounges are also being debundled as something you can pay to use. So if you are that, you know, once a year leisure traveler who just wants to have a great travel experience but may not be able to foot the bill for a first or business class ticket, you can still have a first class experience on the ground, typically for around $35. And, you know, that price point is especially meaningful because that's around what most travelers are already spending in the airport today on things like food items, drinks, paying for Wi-Fi, buying that $5 bottle of water, right? And so when it's all said and done, what you're getting is an all-inclusive and exclusive experience for what you'd otherwise spend in the airport in. So what, you know, what do you need to pull this type of thing off? Well, Tyler says it needs to integrate with other services, which brings us full circle back to the TSA problem, right? If a user has to take additional steps that would be considered inconvenient, if they don't have our app, we don't want a traveler to feel as though they then have to have that additional burden or barrier. So they've partnered with other airlines like Alaska and rolled out kiosks at check-in desks and tried to integrate with services like Expedia Trip at Amex to be where people already are. Yeah. Yeah, and basically the airlines want the same thing. You know, people that use our app might have access to the Alaska Lounge. So we will go there frequently just to be able to listen and hear what they think about. That's Lana Liu and Suzanne Rackman from of the Alaska Airlines user experience team. Yeah, and Suzanne, she says, well, they know how it feels when you're in the airport. You know, air travel is complicated. There's so many things that the guest has to do. They call their passengers guests, by the way. From start to finish. And then in that day of travel space, you know, they're they're stressed out. In listening to them speak, it seemed like an obvious thing to suggest that UX, UX is, is good, good for business. business. Yeah, and so Suzanne said, well, it's, it's good for business and it's good for people. Right. Yeah, it's a mutual relationship here. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting that they refer to UX as a relationship. Yeah. Yeah, they referenced that several times, that principle, throughout our conversation. Uh, Lana said, you know, that actually... Alaska's motto is creating an airline people love. And love is a human element. It's, it's an emotion. So being able to love something that's not something that you typically affiliate with an airline right you you love your parents you love yeah that's not really something you you hear very often i i haven't heard ux designers relay that in that way yeah i thought so too and that gives us good food for thought right because it's easy to lose sight of the fact that there's a human on the other side of facebook or on the other side of whatever we're interacting with but there are a lot of parallels to human experiences when we're designing these digital ones, right? Um, you might think about hospitality. It's like, you know, what, what does West Coast hospitality look like? How does the host or hostess of that dinner party make you feel? It's warm, it's inviting, it's kind of cool, um, really friendly and relaxed. Trying to create that feeling. You can see little bits of that in their Twitter feed, right? They're doing things like offering priority boarding to people who wear an ugly sweater on ugly sweater day or whatever. But it also translates in how 
we might design an app experience, right? You know, from the time that you book a trip and the, by the time you get home, there's a long period of time. There's a lot of steps that you take. Yeah. How do we mise en place the entire experience of flying? Yeah, Uber does a, a great job of that. When they recently redesigned their app, it acknowledges the fact that you're on a linear road. Before you book your trip, the interface is ready for you to call your Uber. Then when you're in the car, it's a different experience. And then after the ride's over, the, the interface reflects the state that you're in to review the driver, to leave a tip. It doesn't show you getting picked up because you don't need to at that point. Yeah, and that's what they said. They said there's lots of opportunities for that type of thought to go into the experience of, of traveling uh, in the air. Where do I need to go for security? Am I in the right line? Do I have everything that I need? And am I going to make it to the gate on time? I would love it if airlines would just aggregate it all into one one app, into that one experience. Yeah. I think what we've learned is that people love getting taken care of. So we need to figure out like, what are those things that we can take off their hands? But there's a there is a balance there too, right? Because humans are unique. They have unique needs. They have unique experiences. So it's determining what are the things that people want the airline to do for them. And what are the things that they want to be able to do for themselves? It, it kind of makes me think in a way of, of sort of this uh, debundling idea. Yeah, I was I was uh, thinking that exact same thing. How can we how can we just make these things a preference that maybe I take short trips, but I always bring a big bag with my. I uh, always bring my acoustic guitar to a party. Yeah, <laughs> that's right, and a baguette, ladies. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's probably where a lot of this debundling comes from is giving people options. And it's not the options that are wrong. Really, back to Tyler, he noted that what's missing is transparency. Provide more transparency about what you paid for. It doesn't necessarily have to be a surprise and delight. But don't surprise and disappoint. If the seat that I booked is the worst seat on the plane, it's not that you have to say you booked the worst seat on the plane, but help to manage those expectations. And Lana basically said the same thing. You know, it's it's not very loving of us to do something like that. There's that word again, right? Loving. It was on their minds to reciprocate that love. Some of the feedback that we've heard from guests about com their complaints about other airlines doing this is that they just wish they knew ahead of time. Yeah, this this flight's the cheapest. It's a hundred dollars, and it's on you know a low cost carrier. But they don't know that it's actually going to be more like two hundred dollars because you are going to be checking in your bag. And and Tyler said the same thing as well. Yeah, because especially for those travelers who fly once or twice a year, um, which is actually most of the world's travelers, right? They don't know who to trust, and so. So if you can provide them with that great information, then you can empower them to be able to make the right decisions. And if they know that the seat they're going to get doesn't have a lot of leg room and they're not going to get a meal and, they're, and all these other things, and they still decide to proceed, chances are they'll still book with you in the future. So I'd love to hear what you guys took away from all these interviews. But for me, there were three key things. One, we have to fight the tendency to view our digital experiences as just a delivery of data, right? We have to consider the same principles we use in human relationships. 
And second of all, we need to consider the evolving needs of our users. We have to think about hospitality. If we had someone over to our house, we wouldn't just dump all the food in a trough and make people dig through it like animals, right? <laughs> we try to serve them what they need when they need it. And third, choices are good, right? But we have to be transparent. It's tempting to maybe make a quick sale by hiding the negative, but it's not sustainable. In theory, if we show users love, they'll love us back. I think the bottom line is you're shooting yourself in the foot if you're not thinking about your relationship with them. If, if you're thinking about the bottom line or if you're thinking about decreasing your own overhead or increasing your profits, then at the end of the day, you're not going to retain users. You're going to lose them. So think about the relationship. If I was to take away maybe two principles from this to add to my own user experience design arsenal, if you will. It would be one, to always try to surprise and delight and not surprise and disappoint. And the other one is what Paul was saying there about loving users. I think that if a user's needs are not being met by whatever platform or app or whatever it is that you're designing, it's because you don't love them yet. And if we love them, then we will consider their needs and love reciprocates love, just like Lana and Suzanne said. I think it's really interesting that the airlines have debundled. And like Hiromi brought out, that's a good thing. We don't want to pay for things that we don't need. But it's created this experience where it feels like we're being nickel and dimed the whole, every step of the way. And we're being unpleasantly surprised by the final price because something was included that we wanted. But flipping it around and say, thinking of it as, what are your preferences? How do you like to travel? Here are the, the flights that you could take, and it's going to cost this much. Why aren't websites saying up front, what do you want? And then that's your results. That's, that's what you're shown. And I think that would, that would set it up as a more pleasant and satisfying experience. Yeah, you, you paid a few extra dollars for certain things, but it's because you want them. Well, that's it. We made it through another episode of ID8. We'd like to thank the UX team over at Alaska Airlines for honoring us with their wisdom, Tyler at LoungeBuddy for his input, my mysterious TSA friend, and of course, the global distribution system, which says... The favorite part was when he gave me the money. <laughs> As always, we welcome your feedback. If you disagree with something that we said or you've got an idea for a future episode, please reach out to us on Twitter or at thesmythegroup.com. Thanks again for hanging out.